Outsiders is made possible by grants from the Dennis A. Hunt Fund at USC Annenberg Center for Health Journalism, Studio to Be Seattle, and Jim and Beerta Falconer of Seattle. A warning, this episode has some adult language. As summer turns to fall, an encampment under the 4th Avenue Bridge remains the most visible sign of Olympia's struggles with unsheltered homelessness. Because of where the camp sits along the water, you can see it from all over the city. 20 or 30 people live there, using the bridge as shelter from the rain. Jessica, who we've been following throughout this series, is one of them for a while, but she keeps clashing with her neighbors under the bridge. That's one sister that I just don't mess with. I just, I, it all depends on how she, how she's doing. At one point, I hear Jessica's left and now lives in some woods near the governor's mansion during a time when Washington's governor, Jay Inslee, is running for the Democratic nomination for president. Then people who live under the 4th Avenue Bridge tell me she's back under there, living under an event tent that says Dino Rossi for governor. I don't know if she's there, but she, she that thing that says Rosie, that's where she lives. Rossi, a Republican, ran for governor in 2004 and 2008. One day, I walk around for an hour in the rain looking for Jessica, but I can't find her. This is a period when I lose track of her, and I start wondering if I'm going to see her again. Around this time, a video starts circulating in Olympia. It's recorded by a woman in her 50s who lives in a home. She walks her dog under the 4th Avenue Bridge, filming with her smartphone. Good morning, everybody. How are you today? Simon and I decided to brave it. She later tells police she was drawn by all the attention on the encampment. Three people come out of their tents and start walking toward the woman. You don't have our permission to record. You can turn it off. Please don't touch me. Okay, then turn your phone Alicia, off. Leave her alone. You don't have our permission Alicia, to record. Leave her alone. Okay, she can take the phone from Alicia, her house. Leave her alone. Please. Go. Bye. Do you have any questions? You don't Hi. have permission to record us. That's against the law. Um, I'm just here to film, sir. Good morning. I'm a filmmaker. And I just film everything. And this okay, is public property. You haven't asked any of us if you can record it's us. It's public property and I'm allowed to film. But you have to ask people no. to record. You're it's not against a lawyer. the law. You're not allowed to touch me. It's against the law. It's assault if you touch me. If you I'm touch not me again, you. I will call the police. You just I don't care. Call me. the police. It's against the law to record. Alicia, the woman who lives in the encampment who's upset, pulls the phone out of the woman's hand. The video goes dark. The woman who filmed it posts the video on YouTube and Facebook. Some people praise her for her boldness, for confronting the people they call trolls living under the bridge where trash is piling up. Others say she was provoking what could have been a dangerous situation. As for Alicia, the 28-year-old woman who grabbed the phone, she was arrested and charged with felony robbery for taking it out of the woman's hand. I'm Will James. This is Outsiders. And in this episode, we talk about what happens to a city, its people, and its politics when homelessness becomes so visible. If you watch that video, you see a lanky guy with red hair and a goatee trying to defuse the confrontation. That's Opie. 
For a while, he was one of the only people living under the 4th Avenue Bridge. Then, as we heard in episode 4, the city displaced people from a large encampment downtown called the Smart Lot. People are not going away. And all the city government wants to do is make them go away. Well, they're just moving to a different area. The stuff with the Smart Lot happened and everybody went moving into the 4th Ave Bridge. So you got all the pushers, all the junkies, but they're doing them drugs because they're homeless. What are they using drugs for? So they can numb their emotions. You know, I have one girl out here that's, because of what her family put her through, the abuse from her mom, the abuse from her dad, she's out here and she's numb. She doesn't feel anything unless she's doing meth. So they're thrown out on the street, so their thought of being worthless is manifested through drugs. And I totally understand that. Opie used to be in the Army. Then he spent a few years in Arizona trying to balance his work as a massage therapist with an addiction to meth, until he almost died of an overdose. And I'm 10 years clean off the meth. Proud of it. He's been homeless the past two years since his marriage broke up. As the bridge camp grew, Opie realized he could do something. His corner of the camp is known as a place where drugs aren't allowed, except for weed. It's where people pitch their tents when they're trying to get over an addiction. Opie and his friends will help them through withdrawals and try to coach them through recovery. I've had multiple people come up to me saying, please help me get off of it. Tell me. And I tell them what they have to do. Opie says a lot of people relapse. Under the bridge, drugs are everywhere, just steps away. Plus, like he says, the drug use is usually covering up other problems like trauma and mental illness that are hard to deal with when you're homeless. But little by little, Opie and a group of others try to turn this encampment into something more, a community. Opie starts to see this work almost as an extension of his past life as a massage therapist, trying to help people heal. We're a very dysfunctional, messed up kind of family, but you learn what somebody's really like when you're living in the, in the gutter. <laughs> Olympia is a beautiful city with the potential to have a thriving downtown. But the beauty is being stripped away by certain individuals that are causing more harm than good. As Olympia has wrestled with a rise in visible, unsheltered homelessness, something else has changed in the city. This change has happened mostly out of sight in people's homes and businesses, but once in a while, it's spilled into view. And now I'm scared. As a business owner, I feel liable for my staff and my clients. They're scared. At one point, a bowling alley near one encampment arranged the letters on its roadside sign to read, open season on tweakers. That's derogatory slang for people who use meth. The bullying and cowardly actions on all sides of this conversation are unacceptable. Then, one winter night, two security guards were patrolling downtown. Part of their job was rousing people from alcoves and doorways where business owners didn't want them sleeping. On this night, protesters, some wearing black clothing and masks, surrounded the security guards, stopping their patrol. 
The protesters called the guards' actions criminalizing homelessness, hassling people who were trying to survive. Police ended up escorting the security guards away from the scene. Afterward, their security company canceled its contract. City council members condemned the protest. That is not advocacy or activism. That is terrorism. All around this liberal West Coast college town, opinions about homelessness are hardening. And later, all these feelings and politics end up converging around the Fourth Avenue Bridge and deciding its fate. In the middle of all this, an essay appears on the publishing site Medium that gets a lot of attention and seems to crystallize a lot of people's feelings. Again and again, people in Olympia have told me they used to see themselves as progressives, but their feelings about homelessness have caused them to rethink their politics. And this essay is by an Olympia woman who says she went through a similar political transformation. I went to visit that woman, and I was joined by Seattle Times Project Homeless reporter Sydney Brownstone. The title of this piece on Medium is The Real Crisis in Olympia is Not Homelessness. Tolerance for Harm is Destroying Our City. It's by a woman named Candace Mercer from Olympia. I think it's had about 60,000 views and maybe 15,000 reads. And I'm a writer with no platform, so it, it reached pretty hard and it spread around the country. I got mail messages from Hawaii, from Austin, from all over. How do you describe Candace's thesis in this article? I think her ultimate point is that Olympia is too permissive when it comes to behavior she sees as harmful or antisocial. I, I have identified as a hard left progressive uh, most of my time here in Olympia. I believe in progressive values, you know, human rights. But I think it's a problem of social norms and that in the name of tolerating and trying to be nice, we're allowing certain social norms to decay. This is someone who seemed to embody some of the ideals that Olympia has around leftist activism. And because of her credibility in that scene or that community, she's speaking about homelessness. It, it's, it doesn't come from the, the usual corners. She's kind of an unlikely messenger. Candace does not live in a gated community. She lives in a small, quirky, cozy house in the woods. She's an artist, and her house kind of reflects that with mannequins and knickknacks. Candace is also an unlikely messenger around drugs because she freely acknowledges that she's done a bunch of drugs. She's not a Puritan when it comes to these things. But she does think that some taboos against drugs exist for a good reason. Do you think, you know, smoking meth or shooting heroin, do you think that's a, a moral issue? It's such a hard question because I'm, I come from the artist world and I'm very libertarian about drugs. Uh, I've used drugs, almost every drug, and I feel strongly about a person's sovereignty over their own body and what they do with it. On the other hand, where the moral issue comes in, I think, with using harder drugs is that it's affecting the world beyond just your body. 
it affects your family, your ecosystem, your you know your all your loved ones get drawn in. And then when if you start doing things like stealing to support your habit, then you're harming your community. So I think there is a moral aspect when you get to you can you can tell that she that maybe at one point identified herself as an outsider, you know, someone who's a little bit radical, someone who's weird, someone who's into art, someone who isn't afraid to play with taboo and breaking certain norms and that kind of thing. I'm from New York, and so I was always one of those people that was kind of mocking the people who were afraid to go downtown, like, oh, come on, you know, it's just some different-looking people. I never felt unsafe in Olympia up to about two and a half, three years ago. And now I'm having to go back to, like, living the way I had to live when I was in the city, you know, being constantly on alert, having situational awareness when I'm walking downtown. How does someone go from an artist and a self-identified progressive activist to an evangelist for personal responsibility? Candace's political transformation started when she moved into this house. When she first moved into the house about five years ago, she noticed that there were a couple of homeless men in the woods behind her what you might call stereotypical homeless guy, older, you know, middle-aged, probably disabled, probably drinking. We knew they were there, but they kept down low. They had dug garbage pits for their garbage, and they didn't cause any problems. And so it was kind of live and let live, and everything, you know, was copacetic. But as homelessness grows in the city, more and more people are drawn to that area, and there's a, suddenly a larger group living in the woods behind her house, and Candace sees that group very differently. The difference in the neighborhood was immediate and apparent. I had 50 people going by my house every day. Stuff started getting stolen, petty stuff for me, yard stuff out of my shed, yard tools. She says that people are walking their dogs around the neighborhood and they start finding syringes on the ground. My neighbors had men being aggressive to them. Another neighbor who's kind of isolated, people were coming onto her property 24-7 to get water and steal her power, like to, to charge things. And so she would just catch them in her yard at all times, and it was very invasive and violating. As all this is escalating, the city of Olympia announces it's going to build a project a two-minute walk from her front door, and it's going to be apartments for chronically homeless people where they'll have caseworkers helping keep them housed. This is called permanent supportive housing. And there's also going to be a low barrier shelter attached to it where people can spend the night even if they have substance use issues. So Candace decides that she's going to write about this project for the local progressive newspaper that she's written for before, Works in Progress, and wrestle with some of her experiences with unsheltered homelessness in her own neighborhood. My plan was to start very micro with my experience with having the unsanctioned camp. I started getting resistance pretty quickly. They ended up running the piece as an opinion piece, even though it was pretty much 90% primary source material. And then after that, I was asked to not write on the issue anymore, 
whatever I wrote must have caused some offense somewhere to someone. She feels rejected by that. But she also starts getting more vocal about her views on other platforms. I, I would have a lot of conversations on Nextdoor. It's kind of like a message board for neighbors online, where she also gets pushback. I would start to post things, and I would start having anxiety, you know, in my chest, like real physical anxiety. There is a real sense that there were things that you could not talk about around homelessness. You just would get shut down or shamed. To suggest that drugs might be part of the problem was verboten. By who? Well, just the general kind of political, the political vein. Like, people were trying to deny the reality you know, making excuses for the behavior, you know, calling theft survival crime. Um, you know, it still kind of mystifies me how people will give moral exemption to the people that are causing harm in our city. And she also describes this one particular interaction she has with someone who is homeless that leaves her kind of wrestling with the idea of, of what the homelessness crisis means. I'm at the 62 bus stop. I ride the 62, so I run into a lot of homeless people, and I, you know, we strike up conversations, and then we talk, and, uh, you know, he said he was living down at the mitigation site, and he didn't ask me for any help, but in our discussions, I realized, hey, there's some things I could help him with. I'd take some cold medicine down to him and some vitamins. And so I did. So I take him to the mitigation site, and I find him. And, you know, he hugs me. He's, thank you, thank you. He's like, hey, man, you want to buy any power tools? Or I got phone chargers. I got all types. They're new. And... It just sent me on a roller coaster of emotions. Like, I... You felt like you were starting to make a connection with this person, and then you thought, oh, wow, he stole a bunch of stuff. Like, was that the roller coaster? Well, yeah, yeah. And, I mean, it doesn't negate that that I did something nice to help him, but then I guess, you know, the idea that I was helping someone who had been stealing and thus harming other people, um, you know, it, it it's emotionally hard to reconcile. Uh, and I think, I think for a lot of Olympians, that's where the heart is starting to close because they're starting to feel taken advantage of. Candace decides to put a lot of these observations that she's been wrestling with into the public. She writes the Medium post. There's a very strong reaction to it from both sides. Some people she feels kind of immediately reject her. Some people she used to consider friends and allies on the left. On the other hand, she's embraced by people who see this crisis in town not as a homelessness crisis, but a, a criminal one. And that gives her a following on the Facebook page, Olympia Looks Like Shit. 
This is a Facebook page where people express their disgust and frustration at the sight of homelessness. Some are venting or processing what they see. Others call homeless people rats and advocate letting them starve or overdose. I asked Candace about those posts. I'm wondering, like, how you feel about the tone of those conversations. Or that language in particular, kind of junky, tweaker, zombies, uh, vagrants, ferals. I think, I think... I don't think it's helpful. I think it's where people are at. While there are people that that are inflammatory about it, it's it's not everyone, though I do recognize that there are people who are extreme about it, and I think they need to be shut down and shown that it's inappropriate. For the most part, I, I think it gets a bad rap because people think, that it's a hate group or that the people there all hate homeless people. And that that's not true. A lot of the people who are on the site have experienced homelessness themselves or have a family member who has or the same with addiction themselves or a family member. So a lot of people there are well in tune with what those issues involve. And, you know, I actually get mistaken for homeless a fair amount on the streets because I'm kind of shabby looking and I wear a hoodie and I, I have a little cart for my groceries. Um, so, yeah, I, I've been poor pretty much my whole life. And in some ways, I identify a lot more with the people that are on the streets as opposed to other places where people are dressed well. Do you have any personal experience with homelessness or housing instability? Yes, yes, actually. Um, I'm disabled. I have been disabled since around 2002. I'm diagnosed with fibromyalgia and chronic fatigue. I also have PTSD and, you know, related mental health conditions, you know, like anxiety and depression, which are also related with the chronic pain and fatigue. So I've been almost 20 years disabled. Um, I'm on Social Security Disability. And I cannot get any help with my housing. My housing costs uh, up to this year were 90% of my income. Now my rent just increased. And so right now my rent is 105% of my income. And so I'm, I'm running a GoFundMe. It's, it, right now it's the only way I can stay housed. And so I supplement with other safety net programs, but I have to just have incredible fiscal discipline to stay housed. And one of, one of the real problems and inequities with the system in Olympia right now is it's, it, it's almost impossible to get housing assistance unless you're homeless. So <laughs> for me to get any help I, I would have to go homeless, and I can't be homeless. Because Candace is dealing with a similar set of struggles, it almost makes her more confident in her views. You know, here is someone who drew on her inner resilience and resources in order to make it through. And 
when we ask her, you know, do you ever wonder if you might end up homeless? She just kind of says, I would figure out a way. You know, her experience on the margins of society thus far have given her uh, a confidence in her ability to work things out no matter what. If you just look at property crime rates in Olympia, for example, those crime rates, they actually decreased between 2017 and 2018. But crime rates don't tell the political story and the kind of emotional and psychological story of what's happening in Olympia. I guess there's a difference between homelessness in the abstract, just reading about it, seeing it on TV, and when it actually shows up literally in your backyard. That presence can fracture previous political alliances. It can make people who identify as one way really question their beliefs. And that's happening in Olympia, and I think it's happening up and down the West Coast. Coming up, opinions about homelessness converge on the Fourth Avenue Bridge, the encampment where Jessica and Opie and 20 or 30 other people live. That's after the break. Hi, I'm Bethany Denton. I'm the editor and mix engineer for Outsiders. And I work with a lot of complicated tape in this series, both in terms of content and also in terms of sound quality. A lot of interviews were recorded next to bus stations and freeways and under bridges. And it's my job to make sure that people's voices come through clearly. It's challenging, but it's worth it to be able to put you, the listener, on the ground with people living unsheltered. Here are a few ways you can help support this kind of long-form, sound-rich storytelling. First, rate and review Outsiders on Apple Podcasts. Second, subscribe to the Seattle Times and make a monthly donation to KNKX. There are links that will help you do all of this in the episode description. We couldn't do this work without our listeners and readers, so thank you. just kind of say who you are. Meg Martin, uh, co-executive director of Interfaith Works Homeless Services. Did you read that Medium post by someone named Candace Mercer? Mm-hmm. Whenever that was, the summer or something? Um, basically, the idea was like, I'm a progressive. I, I see myself as a progressive, but I'm really frustrated, and this is actually all about behavior. Mm-hmm. I'm just trying to figure out what it is I actually want to say with this. Candy's my neighbor. Are you serious? I didn't realize that. Yeah, it's hard. Um, It's okay. We last heard Meg in episode one, presiding over a memorial for a man named Duke. Turns out she lives a block over from Candace Mercer. Meg's been a crusader on homelessness here for a long time. She helped open a shelter that allows people in with drug and alcohol problems. And to do that, she had to overcome a lot of opposition. And there was a lot of fear in the community. Um, Her organization is actually going to run the shelter planned for Candace's street corner. Meg's perspective on homelessness is very different from Candace's. 
I very strongly believe that people's behaviors exist within a context of their environment. And I believe that as a community, we are going to feel continually let down and continually frustrated with our inability to change people's behaviors until their environment changes. But what I've thought about a lot recently is that with the visibility of folks on the street being so prominent, our entire community has been essentially non, non-consensually bearing witness to extreme amounts of human suffering. And that wears on you. The vitriol and the fear and the really intense things that are sometimes written from behind a screen are all very clear signs of burnout. I mean, we live in such a compassionate community. I know that that's true. I've seen it in so many different ways. Meg says people in her field dealing with homelessness all the time, they check on each other, help each other avoid burnout, which she calls compassion fatigue, and what she calls secondary trauma, the idea you can get traumatized from dealing with other people's trauma. And at some point, she realized all her neighbors in Olympia, neighbors like Candace, they don't have that training or those resources. I choose this work every day, but business owners downtown, people driving by, housed residents who feel too afraid to come downtown, they don't have that support. I feel like we've gotten to a place that goes beyond just providing information and education. We need to figure out how to heal. Because when we don't, when people get oversaturated, they go to typically what I see is two kind of extremes, either to this place of apathy and sort of nihilism almost, where it's like, well, nothing we can do anyway, or to this place of intense rigidity, where it's like, I feel out of control, so I'm going to control whatever it is that I can. It's a very natural human response, and if we don't see that for what it is, which is that our community needs support, um, then we're going to continue down this path of blaming, again, that hyper-focus on the individual, blaming the business owner, blaming the service provider, blaming the person on the street. And what that does is it stalls progress on any of these structural issues that are actually going to get us out of this mess. Meg's saying these opinions are more than just people spouting off online. They affect policy. They'll affect Olympia's future. Where Meg finds hope is that Olympia's actually having some of these conversations in a way a lot of other cities aren't. For months, the city government has been convening public forums for people to air their feelings. These meetings are supposed to help the city shape a master plan on homelessness. Cheryl Selby is Olympia's mayor. So here we are on a Saturday morning, continually, uh, continuing to grapple with one of the most difficult issues, certainly of my time. These gatherings often happen in school cafeterias. People are sitting around lunch tables with coffee and paper cups. What's clear at these meetings is how many people in town have been drafted into responding to homelessness, like unofficial and sometimes unwilling social workers, just like Meg said. 
bus drivers, librarians, baristas. How old are you? I'm 23. You're 23. Yeah. You do have blue hair, as you pointed out. <laughs> and so I kind of had you pegged when you sat down. Raven Yamada is about a year out of college. She works at a pet supply store downtown. I show Raven a picture of Jessica, who at one point had a guinea pig. Raven says she used to give Jessica guinea pig food. So we do have a box of free samples that we give out to them, but we've started to be a little bit more on the cautious side because it's attracting more and more people and we're not able to handle that kind of stuff. So we're trying not to encourage that. I uh, graduated from Evergreen in 2018. Um, and I had a lot of um, opinions that I kind of formed there. I started out with a very like, oh yeah, let's welcome them in, you know, help everybody do whatever you can and, and use all the resources we have, use all the money we have. But at this point, I'm starting to become a little bit more conservative and I am starting to see more in downtown, see more incidences where I don't feel safe all the time. I do actually carry mace on my keys and I have my pocket knife on me all, at all times. City officials gather all this feedback. After 20 forums, they say consensus is building around some issues, like the need for more housing and beds for mental health and substance use treatment. But they say a divide remains over what the city should do about unsanctioned camps, like the one where Jessica lives, under the 4th Avenue Bridge. They have a fundamental human right to be secure in their shelter where they're at. And any action to forcibly evict these people is a serious human rights violation. People think they're being compassionate. The concept of having unsheltered sites is inconceivable. There's people that are participating in a drug culture that runs rampant. And then a moment arrives when the city has to decide. What's your understanding of where things stand today in terms of this camp and, and its future? Well, we know that we got the eviction notice. For a while, the city tolerated the encampment at the bridge. City employees brought in portable toilets and a dumpster. They talked about creating a second mitigation site for the people here, keeping this community together in a new tent city. But the plans fell apart. And one day, people under the 4th Avenue Bridge got notice the city planned to sweep the camp. They say a tent caught fire and burned next to some propane tanks. The water under the bridge has tested positive for bacteria from feces, and people digging near the bridge's base could threaten its safety. But instead of going along with this sweep, residents of the camp decide to fight it. They're led by Opie. I stood up and said, I'm not moving. I'm not going anywhere. Why should we be moved out of here when we need a place to live? The same thing everybody else deserves. Residents of the camp and some advocates with a group called Just Housing have been talking with city council members. They say many of the people who are causing problems under the bridge have left. At the last minute, their cause gets a boost. Leaders of local churches say they'll sponsor the camp and help the residents create a governance structure and maintain order. It all comes down to a city council meeting the night before the sweep is scheduled to happen. If the eviction does happen, do you know what time tomorrow it'll happen? Uh, yeah, they will be here uh, starting around 5 o'clock. They'll bring the dumpsters, 5 in the morning. They'll bring the dumpsters and stuff, and then about 8, 8.30, 9 o'clock is when they'll start with the actual procedure. 
Elvis lives under the 4th Avenue Bridge and helps Opie manage the camp. We've been trying to push, fight, and everything else. And right now, hopefully, when we go to this meeting tonight, the eviction will be pulled. But it's not 100% sure. It's not, you know, we don't know. It could be a 50-50 chance. One, they could go one way and pull it, and then they could go another and go ahead with the eviction. You know, when you talk to the council about trying to stop the sweep, what do you, what message do you tell them about why, why it's important to stay here? Because this is our home. This is our family. This is our community. I mean, you wouldn't kick out a whole neighborhood for some st one stupid person's stuff, now would you? Exactly. And what they're trying to do is they're trying to destroy a whole neighborhood. While all this is happening, there's a race for mayor going on in Olympia. And two of the people on the city council are facing off against each other. A lot of voters see this race as a referendum on how the city is handling homelessness. Homelessness is definitely, I think, one of the biggest issues in our community and how to address it. It just has appeared to be ex almost exponential over the last few years. Well, as you heard today, uh, homelessness is the number one issue in Olympia. I consider myself really liberal, but, but when I watch who's being elected and the way they talk about things, the thing that comes to my mind, oh, those liberals. I mean, and so they're so liberal that it feels like, it feels like we're afraid to hurt people's feelings and, and talk about the realities. So, I mean, I'm very empathetic and I also realize that I'm afraid and that's not good either. Both candidates for mayor are trying to balance all the feelings in Olympia, that empathy and that fear. The current mayor, Cheryl Selby, who's running for re-election, used to own a boutique downtown. I sold women's active sportswear and travel clothing. My tagline was, style for your active life. And her opponent, Nathaniel Jones, used to work for the state, overseeing the Capitol campus, which is in Olympia. I was responsible for managing the infrastructure, the utilities on the Capitol campus as well as uh, the grounds and the security as well. As city council members, both have a say in what happens to the camp at the 4th Avenue Bridge, and voters are watching what they do. Good evening and welcome to the Tuesday, September 10th, 2019 business meeting of the Olympia City Council. There are activists who want the camp to stay, frustrated residents who want it to go. Somewhere in the audience at this meeting is Opie, who lives at the camp. I am on the record is not supporting that site for any kind of camp. It's like right away, Cheryl, the mayor, says she wants the camp cleared away and the people there moved to managed places like Olympia's mitigation site. But she's willing to give a temporary reprieve to see how this new arrangement with the churches works out. Then Nathaniel proposes something totally different, keeping the camp in place as long as it takes to find a better location, removing all threat of a sweep. As proposed, the city would simply empty the camp. In this scenario, the bridge campers will likely re relocate to downtown streets and into neighborhood green belts. I don't see how that's an improvement. This proposal just pushes people around. It takes Olympia back to the days of whack-a-mole enforcement. There's no progress in this, just repeated scuffles and police action that cycle must be brought to an end. So we're not entirely surprised by this motion. You, you did um, put it out on your um, campaign materials and Facebook such. Um, Cheryl echoes so Candace Mercer. 
She says people have to be held accountable for behaviors that are harming Olympia. So you talk about respect and accountability. Well, that's a two-way street. You demand respect and you demand dignity, but that's a two-way street. We need it back as a community. The people of Olympia elected us to provide leadership for the greater good of the whole community. And I don't intend to relinquish that responsibility. And I'll be voting against this motion tonight. This goes on for an hour. With winter coming, we find ourselves up against a wall. We can't have vulnerable people out in the cold. If this motion passes, we'll be caving into the demands of a vocal minority that does not represent the best interests of this city. You don't reward a, a toddler in the candy aisle for throwing a fit. Then it's time to vote. Uh, all in favor of the amended motion, say aye. 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 Opposed, nay. Cheryl's the only one to vote no. Nathaniel's plan passes. The bridge camp is saved until the city finds a better site. Opie walks up to the podium. I'm Opie, and I just, I want to thank you. I want to thank the city council. I'm hoping to work with you to better our community. Thank you very much from the bottom of my heart. Candace Mercer's next article comes out a month later. It's titled, Olympia Prioritizes 4th Avenue Bridge Homeless Encampment Over Community. She writes favorably about the mayor's dissenting vote. Cheryl goes on to beat Nathaniel and win re-election. And the people living under the 4th Avenue Bridge settle in and get ready to work with church leaders to create a system for keeping order. But months later, I'm still thinking about a moment from that hour-long debate over the fate of the camp. The future is going to be radically different than the past, and that future is now. It's not from either of those mayoral candidates who are fighting it out. It's from another city council member, Renata Rollins. When I look at these, in, these informal encampments that exist across our community and across the country, that's, that's the future with the kind of wealth extraction that we have in this economy. And I see them not so much as unsanctioned encampments, but informal settlements or informal communities, which is really normal in countries that have a wealth divide like ours does. For nearly a year, Olympia's been trying to invent new ways to respond to unsheltered homelessness and solve the problem of these unsanctioned camps. But Renata's saying, this is bigger than Olympia. I think people that we call homeless people might be better regarded as internally displaced persons, which is a very normal thing in countries with a lot of poverty, with wealth divide, with other turmoil and injustices. There's a pipeline to the streets that's getting wider and wider, and more and more people are getting kicked in. And what's driving that, the data shows, is eviction, housing costs, and jail. She's saying this might be a new normal. For many reasons, the future is going to be radically different than the past. And I believe we need to support policies and practices and solutions that are practicing for that radically different future, which is already here. Later, we revisit the question we asked at the very beginning of this series. Can Olympia point to a way forward on homelessness? But first, we take time to address a couple questions that keep coming up. 
questions that are so complicated they require some space to explore. One of them is whether Olympia is a magnet for homeless people. That's next on Outsiders. Outsiders is a collaboration between KNKX Public Radio and the Seattle Times Project Homeless Team. This episode was reported and written by Sydney Brownstone with me, Will James. Our editors are Aaron Hennessy and Bethany Denton, who's also our mix engineer. Additional editing by Anna Sussman. Our music is from Blue Dot Sessions. Thanks to Viana Davila and Scott Greenstone of Project Homeless at the Seattle Times, KNKX Director of Content Matt Martinez, and Digital Content Manager Kari Plog. Parker Miles Blome took photos for the project. Adrian Flores designed our logo. Special thanks to Nick Eaton and Emily Ang of the Seattle Times, who made OutsidersPodcast.org. I'm Will James. Thank you for listening. <laughs>